Good morning. My name is Harry Gibbs. I serve as an elder here at Browncroft Community Church. I grew up in a small rural town called Florida, New York. Many of you are probably thinking, where in the world is Florida, New York? Well, you've probably, many of you, have driven past it. Um, about three hours east on the New York State Thruway is Amsterdam, New York, and the town of Florida is south of Amsterdam. So I went to school, uh, going to, grew up going to Amsterdam schools in the 90s and early 2000s, and I probably had about 250, 300 kids in my graduating class, so about the same number of kids before and after me, let's say 1,200 kids going to Amsterdam High when I was there. And I can promise you, there wasn't a single kid named Harry. <laughs> Not one. So being a Harry in that time was quite unique. I was fine being unique, but what I really loved, what I truly desired, was to be cool. I wanted to be the cool kid. Well, I got my wish because in 1997, a book you may have heard of, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was published. <laughs> Very first page of that story is a young boy named Harry celebrating his 11th birthday. Well, in May of 1997, this Harry was celebrating his 11th birthday. My mind was blown. I was just like, oh my goodness, this is my guy. Me and Harry, we uh, were tied at the hip ever since, and he made Harry cool. So, I love this story outside of just him being named Harry. So, Harry celebrates his 11th birthday. He goes off to Hogwarts school where he finds out he's a famous wizard known as the boy who lived. He also finds out he has an arch nemesis named Lord Voldemort. Throughout the story, Harry is sacrificing more and more of himself for the greater good. And in his battle against Lord Voldemort, he has to give up his popularity and his fame, his friends and family along his journey. And all of this sacrifice is still not enough. In the final moments of the last book, Lord Voldemort is closing in. Evil is looking to reign over the world. But it is Harry that has one final sacrifice to make. The boy who lived must die to save himself and everyone else. We're continuing our series on serving today, serving by giving. And my main point is radical giving results from radical trust. So we're back in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, in a passage called Jesus and the Rich Young Ruler. I love this passage, and I love how you can break it up into three parts, which is what we'll do this morning. You have dialogue with the rich man, Jesus teaching on riches in the kingdom of God, and Peter's response in Jesus' promise of reward. Jesus in this passage is traveling with his disciples on a journey toward Jerusalem, where we know he will die on the cross and be risen from the dead. But this interaction along his journey is not uncommon throughout the Gospels. You know, Jesus is approached many times, mostly by the Pharisees, with these gotcha questions, very disingenuous questions along the journey that Jesus is dealing with. But this one is different. 
This man shows the deference for Jesus. He does not have a false motive like the Pharisees always did. His question is genuine and sincere. Let us read Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, I have kept all of these since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So again, Jesus is in Judea, continuing on his way to Jerusalem. Very well-known passage, probably because we hear it in multiple Gospels. We have Matthew identifying the man as young. We have Luke calling him a ruler, which is how we get the young ruler. But Mark, however, he does not up front give you that special distinction. As a reader, he makes you wait. He produces this dramatic climax. And what stands out to me is, again, this approach to Jesus Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As I mentioned earlier, you know, Jesus is taking questions along this journey, but it's the magnitude of this one that stands out to me. Eternal life. So you have to imagine from Jesus' perspective, it's this, yes, finally, I've been waiting for one of you to ask me the big question. Finally, I'm able to answer the story of eternal life. You know, you just are looking at this story, and I think of myself, you know, relationships I've had, and many of you I'm sure have had, where you know there's something you want to speak into in a friend or family member's life. But you have to, you know, you have to wait to be welcomed into that space, and then you can drop the truth bomb. Or for your parents out there, you know, your sons or daughters have the big life questions they finally ask, and it's this yes moment for mom and dad to finally drop the knowledge on their kids. I'm a father of a four-year-old, so they're not quite that big yet. They're still little, four-year-old little, and I imagine, I hope I'm ready for when the big questions come. But for Jesus, he, he, he certainly was ready during his teaching in Galilee, Galilee, just waiting for the question on eternal life. From the man's perspective, you know something's up. Something is bringing him there that day. I mean, he's rich, he's young, he has power and influence in society, but there's a lingering doubt. He needs to know, will all this goodness pay off for him in eternal life? Jesus starts with a bit of a rhetorical response. <laughs> Call me good? No one is good except God. You know, I just think he's, he's steering this man towards accepting the one true God, Israel's one true God. Jesus lists off the commandments 
But we see the emphasis of the passage here. The omission of thou shalt not covet with do not defraud. Why? Well, this man is wealthy. Why would a wealthy man covet? He's got money. Again, he's got power, influence. Maybe he's good looking. But defraud, that means something. Did this man gain his wealth through defrauding during the course of normal business? Did he gain this wealth at the sacrifice of the poor? The implication is that the man's wealth was his first love. And keeping him from fulfilling Jesus' greatest commandment to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his riches more than he loved God. He was trusting in himself more than he trusted in Jesus. Those righteous deeds, you can hear it in the passage. Lord, ever since I was a boy, I've been keeping the commandments. His possessions, he just walks away, unwilling to give up his power and influence. He must repent of this love of riches and put his faith in Jesus instead. My first point this morning, Jesus calls us away from trusting ourselves to trusting him. I've done a lot of uh, self-discovery over the last decade and uh, just trying to better understand myself and how I tick. And what I discovered was certainty and security was this fundamental core issue for me. That my, though I used those as avenues to control my life's situations. That I could just squeeze it, put it a stranglehold on it tight enough that all would be good. I could provide the results I needed. And isn't that what the rich young ruler is doing here? He's almost begging Jesus, please just tell me from one good guy to another, all this goodness, the keeping of the commandments, my power and wealth and fame, this is all going to be enough for eternal life. Because I really don't want to change. How many of us have experienced that? not wanting to let go, not wanting to lose control and putting a radical trust in Jesus. You know, I uh, can find myself being the young ruler in so many situations growing up. Uh, I grew up, as I mentioned, small rural town, but uh, sports was my outlet. Fall, winter, spring, summer, if it was a season of the year, I was playing a sport golf, basketball, baseball, and football. It did not matter. I loved sports because it provided a a safety net, security, and certainty in my popularity. I wanted to be the cool kid in sports. That brotherhood, it allowed me that safety net. But like many young men growing up in high school, uh, there reaches a point where you realize uh, being a professional athlete is not a viable option. Not going to happen. I, I mean, so cool if one of you becomes a professional athlete and uh, one of us can maybe get your autograph. That would be cool. But I had to make a choice. So my choice was built into that insecurity of self. All right, all I have is sports. That's what I know. 
what can I do if I, I'm not a professional athlete? Okay, I'm going to talk about sports. I'm going to talk about professional athletes. So that launched me on a journey to a small Christian school in Michigan called Spring Arbor University, where I studied sports broadcasting. Out of college, I got a job at a radio station here in Rochester Clear Channel Radio. I was talking sports for Wham 1180 and 1280 WHTK. I was living my dream. I was so thankful because I had so much anxiety around what I was going to do. So thank the Lord he gave me the one thing I could do. I could talk sports. One problem. It was an absolute disaster of a career. I started in fall of 2008. Many of you probably remember that time uh, just in the economy. So within three months, half the staff was laid off. They kept me because they paid me $8 an hour, so I was a great investment at that time. <laughs> so half the staff gets laid off. I'm like, okay. Then it's a professional disappointment comes up next. And then some more layoffs. Seven years of this dream slowly dying. And I was so selfish and so certain that this was all I could do. I had disconnected myself from God's calling for my life. I needed radical trust. I needed to let go of this stranglehold I was putting on my life. God was not putting it on my life. I was doing it to myself. What are you controlling in this moment that keeps you from a deeper, more trusting relationship with Jesus? At that point in my life, it was my dream of being a broadcaster. Let's read now Mark chapter 10, verses 23 through 27. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible with God. I just laugh just thinking about the disciples, just like, uh, what is he doing? Does he realize this guy has money and power and influence? Does he know what this could do for the kingdom of God? I mean, has he checked our bank account lately? We need this guy. We need this type of person with us on our journey. But no, Jesus was trying to make something very clear to us and the disciples in that moment. That to enter the kingdom of God, one must submit to God's rule so that God's reign is over every aspect of your life. Your time, your talent, and most certainly in this case, the treasure of the rich young ruler. Jesus' radical demands in this passage can only jar our culture as materialistic as we are today. So my second point today is our priorities reveal 
our loyalties. Our priorities reveal our loyalties. So my radio career is coming to an end, and I'm in a tough spot. I don't know what's next. So I start meeting with a counselor, and he just helps put some framework around what I can do and what the next step can look like. So enter banking. Yes, as insane as that sounds, broadcasting to banking. I started as a teller at a branch here in Penfield as a part-time teller. I had to start as a part-time teller because I did not radically trust. I kept my radio job. I was doing both at the same time because I thought, this is insane. There's no way this works. I know I was in the same room with the counselor, and we both agreed that this was the best option. I just do not believe it. There's no way. Within three months, I was promoted to a financial service representative. A year after that, I was promoted to assistant branch manager. My life was transformed. Wow. God, you have blessed me. My wife and I, we, we love to travel, and boy, did this provide an opportunity. You know, finally, you have banker hours versus broadcaster hours. Big win on the time front for a banker. You've got radio, $8 an hour, Harry, and banker salary, Harry. Way different set of treasure. So we were overjoyed. We'd been married for seven years, we were ready to travel. So we went out west and we climbed high peaks and we went to Europe and we went to England and Scotland. We even bought a puppy. We did it all. We went all in. We then had a problem. The fall of 2016 here at Browncroft Community Church, you'll remember, was a time for us to reach. Well, I know it was just a capital campaign, but for Melanie and I, it was much more. We were being asked to tap in to our treasure, our newly found treasure. So in that part of uh, the season at church, we were asked to make a pledge. So we go home and we sit down at the table and we both write down something. And we pass it across to each other. And it's like all that anticipation, like what's it going to be? Exact same number, I promise you. God had blessed this opportunity. God was ready for us to radically trust him with our money. There's only one problem. What were we going to give up? I really like going out to downtown Rochester, getting all dressed up, going out to eat, we love traveling. Like, what, what were we going to give? What we were going to give is our trust, radical trust. We needed a resource, though. And that came in the winter as we started a class called Financial Peace University. One of the hallmarks of FPU is the baby steps. So Melanie and I got on a budget. We had family meetings. In our marriage, it was growing. 
We were able to pay off all our debt in an 11 and a half months, and we even got to go on the Dave Ramsey show to celebrate. We did a debt-free scream with Dave. My favorite part of the class, though, is what happens at the very beginning. You have to name every dollar. Give every dollar a name. That's a slogan. And you do that through making a budget. That's where you truly learn where your loyalty lied, and we learned where our loyalty lied in our marriage. Even as I teach the class now, the most resistance I get is at that budget class. People do not want to get on a budget. Maybe some of you are feeling that now. And the reason we don't want to do that is the spotlight it will shine on where we are not walking with the Lord. For us, (laughs) the horrifying reality was Starbucks. In 2016, the Gibbs family spent more on Starbucks than maybe anyone in human history. If you are a stockholder, you're welcome. (laughs) I had the branch shared a parking lot with Starbucks. It was not even fair. I was tired. I just showed up. I mean, it's right there. My wife is a first grade teacher, and if you know anything about teachers, they need coffee before school during school, and definitely after school. And if it's report card season, just another one just to get through the report cards. It was not great. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We lost focus in that season. We allowed the seduction of money and everything that the culture says you can have and you deserve to overcome us. We lost radical trust. My question is, if, for you, maybe, is if riches are not meant to bring us personal happiness, well, what are they for? Well, I think it's very clear. They are God's resources entrusted to us to accomplish his purpose. These purposes include caring for the poor and reaching out to those in our community who need most. Essential for all believers is the principle of good stewardship, that we have, what we have is God's and should be used for his purposes. Your wealth is a resource for God's kingdom, not your own selfish desires. A crazy thing happened um, after we got out of debt. Three months later, I was promoted to branch manager. And I think about it. God was shepherding me. God knew what was coming. God knew how I had handled his blessings leading up to that. He needed to make a radical change in me in 2017. So he used FPU and he used the REACH initiative to challenge Melanie and I to radically trust with our money. It doesn't take a rocket scientist uh, to see that I don't love working out. It's not my favorite thing. It's like number 50 on the list. Um, But what I've heard about working out (laughs) is that when you 
work hard at it and you dedicate yourself to it, you slowly start to see the gains. And after a week, it's very little. And after a couple weeks, it's a little more. And the months and the years stack up and you're transformed. That's what trust looks like. Radical trust does not happen like that. Radical giving doesn't happen like that. You need to work the muscle, the muscle of trusting the Lord. I loved uh, Jill's prayer, talking about the prayer she had in the car. What a beautiful representation of that. Her trust started with one word, but that word got louder and the impact got stronger. And I'll speak for her. I'm sure she can radically trust knowing how God shepherded her and her husband through that season. I love how the late Tim Keller talks about this passage in his book, Jesus the King. It's a chapter titled, The Trap, and Keller writes, If you understand that Jesus is the true rich young ruler, it is going to change your attitude about money. For example, you won't be trying to figure out how much you have to give away. You're try to figure out how much you can give away. The real standard for how generous you will be is the cross. Jesus is saying, I want your attitude toward money to be utterly changed and reworked by what I'm going to do there. What I think Keller means by Jesus being the true rich young ruler is that Jesus actually gave it all up. He gave up the big all. How little and insignificant is what he is calling us to give today compared to that? We need to allow the cross to be a spotlight for where we are in radically trusting. Let's close the passage by reading Mark chapter 10, 28 through 31. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution and the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Remember, the rich young ruler appears to have everything going for him. None of the disciples stopped him from approaching Jesus. It was just an, oh, that just speaks to his societal stance. And I just love how Jesus answers the man. It's not sarcastically, it's out of deep love. He is desperately concerned for this man's eternal destiny. He sees clearly this man has made wealth and personal success his God. He must give up everything his whole life and follow Jesus. 
Salvation comes not through human effort or good works, but rather through the renouncing of self and depending on God. Salvation, though it costs us nothing, it costs everything. Our very lives. To follow Jesus truly means to follow him fully. Again, radical giving results from radical trust. At the bank, when customers and colleagues um, they find out I was a sports broadcaster, it's like, oh, wow, oh, my gosh. Um, how did you make such a dramatic switch? I just don't understand. It doesn't even make sense. And I was like, you're right, it doesn't. It makes absolutely no sense. I had to give up control. I had to radically trust that there was something greater than all the self-assurance and self-pity that I'd put on myself, all the lies I told myself, that all I was good for was talking sports on the radio. We have a greater God than that. But I needed to radically trust. And it didn't happen overnight. But there are little things in little ways I feel we can model it. And, and Jesus maybe even illustrates it perfectly to his disciples. Earlier in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Deny yourself of all that anxiety and nonsense. If you want to serve by giving, if you want to be a radical giver, it takes a daily commitment and radical trust in the Lord. I grew up in the church, but I wasn't a believer. I went off to Christian college, and I declared a life for Jesus. I became a Christian that day. But you know what? Every day, I have a choice. Every day, you have a choice. And that choice to make is, will I be a disciple for Jesus? A radical choice in today's culture. There is not a single social media post, television show, nothing. Your colleagues at work, there is no environment that is going to teach radical trust in Jesus. This is a daily commitment we make we take up our cross and follow. This radical trust is only because of a Savior who was fully human, died on that cross, and rose again. Amen? As Keller says, if that doesn't utterly change you, what will? Let's take some time for a quiet reflection. I want to invite up elders, staff, uh, prayer leaders to join us. Radical trust. What does that mean to you? I've shared what it meant in my life through the years to radically trust Jesus with my job, with our finances with our ability to reach. 
But that's not all of your stories. I think Jesus is being very unique in this passage and how he calls out the rich young ruler. And he's not asking all of us to give it all up, all of our finances and just give it all to the poor and follow them. That is not everyone's story. Probably very few of you. But all of you have something. Is it your time? Are you trusting in your time more than what God has for your time? Is it your talent? Is there something you don't believe God has a greater ability to serve with? Radical trust. So let's take a moment to just be quiet. You have elders and leaders here that want to pray for you. You don't have to tell us what it is that you need to radically trust the Lord with. Just give us your name and we want to pray for that. Because we believe that when you radically trust, you will be a radical giver for the Lord. We're going to continue to to pray. Um, As elders, we want you to know that we're praying for all of you. Your staff is praying for you. So we want to allow space for that to continue to occur. But I do want to mention, Financial Peace University is coming back here to Browncroft. October 1st will be the first class. It's 10 weeks, and it'll put a spotlight on where you need to radically trust the Lord with your finances. So I just wanted to make sure you knew if that was the thing today, that's where you need to greater trust the Lord. That's a good start. Let me pray for all of us and then we'll go enjoy a beautiful day. Father God, Thank you for this church, Browncroft Community Church, its staff and elders and leaders, that you have blessed us abundantly, that you called us to reach, and that we were able to transform this campus, the community we exist in, and the community at large. But now, Lord, we are asking for the courage to radically trust greater in you. Because we know that being a radical giver is at the heart of what your call is in this passage. That, Lord, we so much are like the rich young ruler. We have no idea whatever happened. He went away sad and disappointed because he didn't know what was to come, Lord. That you would die on a cross and rise from the dead declaring you are king. That should 
utterly change us. Allow that to fall over us, Lord, daily, so that we can radically give back to you who has given everything. In your son Jesus we pray, amen. Have a blessed Sunday.